Amen. John 14 is where we're going to be at in your Bible. That's actually where we were at last week. We're going back to that chapter. So if you would join me there. Uh, but before we get started, let's pray together. Let's just pause a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm so thankful that even though I never could have orchestrated the way that you have brought these various families and lives together, Lord, through the happenings of this past week and the last 40 years, Lord, you have been working in their story. And Lord, I ask that this morning would not just be any other Sunday, Lord, but it would be another day where you're at work, drawing them closer to yourself, making them more like your son. Lord, I ask that today would be the day where lives are restored, were made new, and that you'd use this moment, this message, and the power of your spirit to bring it to pass. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, this week, I got to be in a room with several business leaders who have a lot of experience. And one of the first things that the organizer did is he asked someone who's been leading in their role for a very long time to come forward and share some insight. And when he got up, he asked, how many of you have been in your role for less than three years? And about half the room raised their hands. And then he began to speak about how he had led in that position for three decades. And how he had been, what we're currently going through, numerous times. And it was encouraging to hear that what was happening now isn't new, and it isn't just you. And so let me say to you this morning that whatever it is that you're facing, whether it's a temptation, whether you're terrified, whether you're facing some major altar in your life's trajectory, you're about to be married, you're about to be a parent, you're about to change jobs, whatever it might be, this isn't anything new. And it's not just you. God has a plan and he's brought many people through this exact same scenario and he'll do the same for you. So there's this comfort in knowing other people have faced this before and made it. And what's interesting is that when this happened and I heard this, it reminded me of last Sunday's message. Because last week we wrapped up our series on what's a disciple look like. Remember we talked about a disciple abides in his word, walks in his ways, and does his works. And last Sunday, as we wrapped up that, that series and we talked about does his works, we were here in John 14, where Jesus tells the disciples, greater works than these will you do. It's those who follow me, who trust me, will do these works. But there was a moment in the message that I felt like maybe there was a little bit of a shift in the room. Like suddenly, some of us were uncomfortable. I felt that specifically when I spoke about hard callings and uncomfortable Things that God is calling us to, that when God gets us out of our comfort zone. Um, and that's what was happening in the room with the disciples. Jesus is talking to them. He's telling them that he's leaving. They don't like this idea. And we wrapped up last week in John 14. I just felt this nudge in my heart. We need to, we need to revisit that part about the uncomfortableness or the hardness of the calling. So this morning, I want us to hear what Jesus said to the disciples about fear and about being afraid. I want us to hear what Jesus said to comfort them. So if you would, look with me at John chapter 14, 
We'll start reading in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas, who's often referred to as Doubting Thomas, Thomas who's referred to as being fearful. I don't know that that's fair. I think Thomas is just more outspoken than most, and so he vocalizes his fears while everyone else just internalizes them. And so Thomas speaks up, and he asks a question. He says, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So Philip speaks up next and he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Do you know what the most often repeated command in the Bible is? I think if you were to ask just the general public, people probably have this idea that the Bible is just this Puritan document that's always telling us all of these things we shouldn't do, all of these activities in the world that we shouldn't be a part of. And they would assume that the most often repeated command in the Bible had to do with sexuality or not lying or not saying bad words. But the most often repeated command in Scripture is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It appears in one form or another around 117 times. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Here Jesus words it as, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I think Jesus is speaking to the fear that the disciples feel, but it's also a little broad in this way that he words it, because we could look at this and hear Jesus saying, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be afraid. Now, some of you are here and you say, man, the Bible commands me not to be afraid 117 times. That's a command I break every day because you're afraid of a lot of stuff, right? You're terrified. Now, hear me, just because you get scared doesn't mean that you're afraid. 
And I want us to see this distinction in God's word. If someone jumps out and scares you, that's not the same thing as being afraid. My grandfather was a pastor, and the church that he pastored in Virginia Beach is this large, expansive building. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church by yourself at night, but it's terrifying. <laughs> All right? Really, any big, large building to be in there by yourself. There's just so many corners and rooms that someone could be in that you wouldn't know about. And my grandfather, who's the pastor of this large, expansive building, he was notorious for jumping out and scaring people at the church. <laughs> Sometimes people would have to be there late to get something ready for the next day or something like that, and he would be there reviewing his notes or, or making phone calls, which he did every Saturday night, and he would hear someone come in, and he would go and find a hiding space to jump out and scare them. And people would tell these stories. He, he was kind of like just famous for it, and I thought, that's horrible. It's horrible. Because I know it can be kind of terrifying to walk through an empty church building at night by yourself. And if you know the pastor is prone to do this, you'd never volunteer to go print out the music sheets or anything like that. Now, someone jumping out and scaring you, like my grandfather, that's, that's scaring you. There's a distinction here. We often combine the feelings of being scared and being afraid in our minds. Being scared is a natural reaction, right? So much so that when you're scared, when someone jumps out in front of you, when something darts in front of you, right, you have an involuntary reaction. You don't have the time to process what is happening. You just go into fight or flight mode, right? You, you immediately jump back, right, or you jump towards Right? You just immediately, your brain doesn't have the opportunity to process, wait a minute, that's the pastor jumping out at me and scaring me. You just have this initial involuntary reaction. Scared is the reaction you have almost without thinking. Fear is the state of thinking fearful thoughts, being afraid. Being scared because you haven't had a moment to process the information is different than being afraid and living in that state of being scared after you've had the opportunity to process the immediate reaction of panic. Um, being afraid is never walking into a building. Being afraid is saying, I'm not going in there at all because there could be a murderer in there, right? Even though if we have time to process logically, okay, that's highly unlikely. To help us make the distinction even more, I want you to see the way the Bible talks about fear is different than the way that we think about fear. In the book of Revelation, in the passage of Revelation 21 and verse 8, it's telling us about all of the people who will be poured into the lake of fire after the judgment. And you read this passage, and, and most of the people who are referred to there, it's unsurprising. It's the unbelieving, the abominable murderers, the sexually immoral, right? And we go, yeah, absolutely. But one of the people, one of the classifications that is mentioned will be poured into the lake of fire in Revelation 21.8 are the cowards. You say, hold on. <laughs> 
um, you know, I get murderers and I get sorcerers and I get the people who refuse to believe in God, but people who are scared, God's going to throw them into a lake of fire. And the reason we think that way is because when we hear that, we think of, well, that's just the way I was born. I was born nervous. I've always been nervous. I've always been frightful. Right? We think of it like someone's introverted or extroverted. Right? We, we think of this as like God saying, and all of the extroverts were poured into the lake of fire. Right? Introverts were like, yes, heaven's going to be awesome. Not a whole bunch of people trying to talk to me. Um, we think of being cowardly as this personality trait or characteristic that is ingrained into who we are. But the Bible doesn't see cowardliness, cowardliness as a character trait, but rather the scripture views it as a lack of faith, a lack of belief. There's a passage in Numbers that tells us the story of the Israelites have made their way out of Egypt where they were in bondage and slaves. They have gone across the Red Sea through the desert. God has provided for them numerous times, given them bread every morning, given them water to drink in the middle of dry, thirsty deserts. And they come to the promised land. And it's called the promised land because it is the land that God has promised to them. And they send 12 spies into the promised land for 40 days. And those 12 spies come back and they say, Everything that God has told us about the promised land is true. It is incredible. Look at these grapes that we found. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, just like God said that it is. But the people there are mighty, and they're giants. There were 12 of these spies. Ten of them give this report that the, the land is unconquerable. And everyone becomes afraid. All of the people are terrified. These ten spies say we are like grasshoppers in their sight. And everyone's terrified, and they say we wish we'd never left Egypt. And what is God's reaction? God is furious. Why is God furious? Well, he says in 14 verse 11, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? with all the signs I have performed among them. Moses pleads with God not to just wipe the Israelites off the face of the earth. He intercedes for them. God is talking with Moses and he says in verse 22, all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and the wilderness have put me to test now ten times. God is saying, I delivered them with the plagues in Egypt. I brought them out of what was the most powerful nation in the world where they were slaves. I have fed them in the desert. I have given them safe passage across the sea. I have fed them. And now that they are on the brink of the promised land, they think God can't help us. And God says, I'm done. What have I got to do to prove to you that I can overcome any obstacle for you? 
And I'm reminded of this passage because what Jesus says in verse 11 to Philip, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Philip, you've seen me do the miracles. Philip, you've seen me raise people from the dead. You were there when I fed the thousands. Can't you see what it is that I've been trying to live out before you? Can't you see? Don't you see it? And what Jesus is saying to them here and what God was saying to the people at the edge of the promised land is the same thing that I heard in that room of business leaders. We overcome fear in the moment with perspective. Perspective. Fear happens when we fail to consider with perspective all that God has done and promised he will do. All the Israelites saw was the challenge before them and the might of the people in the land. They were forgetting who God is. The Christian's response to fear should be very different from the world's. You see, the world tries to ignore the problem or deny that there is a problem or forget about the problem. The world's way to handle fear is act like there's nothing to be afraid of, right? The world says things like, just focus on what you can control. Stay positive, right? And what's that? That's telling us, forget about the problem because there's nothing you can do about it. Just focus on what you can control. Deny it. Pretend it isn't there. Tim Keller once shared the story that there was a man who was shackled to a ball and chain. So think about the old comic prisoner, you know, he's got this huge ball and chain that he's tied to, and he can't get free of it. And since the man can't free himself of the chain, he decides, you know, he knows what he'll do. So he digs a hole, and he pushes the ball and chain into the hole, and then covers the hole with the dirt and says, I'm free. And does that work? No. Actually, he's only made a situation worse, right? Because now half the chain's in the ground, and there's dirt on top of the ball. It's now heavier than ever before. He's actually further restricted his movement, but because he can't see the ball and chain, he feels free. The world will tell us to pretend that our bondage isn't there. The world will tell us that the pretend that the mountain isn't there. That is not what God does for us. What God does for us is he says, don't forget that I am the God who can free you. Don't forget that I am the God who can remove you from bondage. The world has a lot of tips and tricks and hacks and substances for forgetting about our predicament and our situation, for denying it. But this doesn't work. For the Christian, we don't overcome fear by ignoring, burying, denying the facts. We look them right in the face and say, God's bigger, he's greater, he will overcome. Carl Vaders wrote a book titled The Grasshopper Myth. And it's about this passage of scripture in Numbers where the spies come back and they say, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And this is a thing that fear does to us. It causes us to exaggerate the situation. Now, no doubt the people in the promised land that they would have to overcome to take possession of the promised land, they were powerful. They were mighty. 
No doubt they were taller than the average Israelite. No doubt they had fortified cities and armies, but the Israelites were not actually the size of grasshoppers, were they? But when we are emotional, we exaggerate, right? Let let me just give you a, a for instance. Probably happened this week, right? You had an argument with your spouse, right? And you said something along the lines of, you always or you never, right? Now, listen, maybe he almost never takes out the trash, right? Or maybe she almost always remembers that thing you did 10 years ago, right? But that isn't the same as always. There is that one time that he took the trash out seven years ago, okay? There is that one time a few months ago she didn't remember. Like, we, we exaggerate and we go to these 100% statements. It is never fair or right to use 100% statements in your argument with your spouse. I'll just give you a pro-marriage tip, all right? But we go there because when we're emotional, we exaggerate things. And because they were afraid, they exaggerated in their report the situation. And the reason Vader's titled the book The Grasshopper Myth is because it was a myth. It wasn't real. Yes, the people in the promised land were mighty and powerful, but they weren't so gigantic that the Israelites were actually like grasshoppers. And there are myths that we believe because our fear has convinced us that the situation is worse than it actually is. Our natural instinct is to magnify the problem or deny the problem. What What Thomas and Philip are doing here is they're magnifying a problem. Lord, we don't know the way. How can we know where you're going? We don't don't know the way. And Jesus goes, yeah, you do, Thomas. I'm standing right in front of you. Philip says, Lord, if you just show us the Father, that would suffice. God, if you would just do this one thing for me, I promise it'll all be fine after that. How many of you have ever said something like that, right? Here's what Philip is saying. Lord, if you, if Jesus, if you'll just do this, it will suffice. And Jesus says, what do you think I've been doing for the last three years? Thomas and Philip saying what the others are thinking. Lord, Lord, you haven't shown us. And Jesus says, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Remember. You see, we overcome fear with perspective And we overcome fear by looking at the truth. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled and then place what they were facing in perspective. He says to them, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. What is the why behind Jesus' departure? The why is he's going to prepare a place for us. To make room for us. Verse 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Everything's fine. Jesus doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. It is just downhill, even kill slope from here. Jesus doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled. You have no problems. Jesus doesn't promise the Christian that everything will be easy. 
doesn't promise the Christian that it'll all be rosy. What he promises us is that there is a reward, that there is an eternal hope and rest that awaits us. That's what he's doing here for the disciples. He's putting them back into eternal perspective. We are often focused on what's happening right now, this hour, this day, this year. As Christians, we should have an eternal perspective. Now, people in the world will tell you, listen, you need to zoom out. You need to have some perspective. And they're saying you need to have some perspective over this year, over, over a lifetime. God says, no, that's, that's rookie stuff. That's minor league stuff. Let's really get perspective. Let's talk eternity. Eternity. No matter what happens this week, the worst news you could, news you could ever receive could come. And in the eternal perspective, it's much easier to handle it. And we see this best when we watch a Christian die well. If, you, if you've had the opportunity to walk with someone who is a believer, come to the end of their life knowing that it is approaching, knowing the prognosis that they have been given, knowing that they have months or days to live and them to walk into eternity embracing that reality with hope and joy, you've watched someone with an eternal perspective on death. And it's a beautiful thing. When we have that eternal perspective, we know we will be reunited with the Lord. The perspective that believers have is so drastically different from the perspective of the world. And what Jesus tells them is not everything's going to be easy because just about every one of these guys, they're going to die a martyr's death. But when they did, they would meet Jesus on the other side. We overcome fear with perspective and we overcome fear through the promises of God Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. He's terrified at this new prospect. He's exaggerating. Even though he probably doesn't even realize it in the moment, he does know the way he knows Jesus. And in Jesus' response, we get these powerful verses that perhaps many of you have come to memorize and quote many times, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, if you know me, you know the Father. If you know me, you know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what a beautiful thing. Listen closely. This is the beauty of the gospel. Knowing the truth and knowing the way aren't necessarily the same thing. Right? A lot of times there's, you know there's a place out there, but you don't know how to get there. Right? You know there's a beautiful vacation resort out there, but you don't know how to get there. But when we know Jesus, we not only know the truth, we know the way. He's not just the truth, he is the way, he is the life. He's made the way for us. He's made it possible for us to have a home in heaven because of what he's done for us. And so when Philip asks, can you just show us the Father? Jesus can say, you see the Father because you see me. You're already connected to him. Jesus says, Philip, that's what I've been doing. 
um, Nicole, my wife, um, it, was, it was fitting and appropriate. You called her up here when you showed appreciation. Thank you. I was fitting and appropriate because she is three times the pastor I am. All right? Anytime I've done something that was good as a pastor, she probably reminded me to do it. Okay? She reminds me of things I need to do all the time. She is way more organized than I am. She has reminders in her phone that go off to remind me to do things that I need to do. Okay? My favorite response to give when she reminds me of something that I need to do is, I already did it. And not in a sarcastic way, like, ah, I remembered, you didn't have to tell me. But like, I'm glad to be able to say, I don't have another task to do that's already been done, but thank you for reminding me. Philip says, Lord, can, can you show us the Father? And Jesus said, I already did it. It's already done. I've shown you. As Christians, we don't have to worry that the task will be done. Because the thing that we put our hope and trust and faith in, the moment that has earned us salvation and paid for our sin, already done. Already done. We put our trust in something that has already been accomplished. It's not hinging upon our ability to hopefully one day earn our way. We're putting our hope in something that is already done. Already done. Which brings me to my last step for not letting our hearts be troubled. We overcome with fear, fear with perspective. We overcome fear with promises and we overcome fear with past performance. You've probably heard the phrase, past performance is not indicative of future results. And you might not even know where you've heard that, but that rings familiar to you because every commercial for any type of financial securities product has to say that it's an SEC rule. Because their commercials say, we've done all these things for our clients. And then they have to say, past performance is not indicative of future results. Because the stock market, who knows what it's going to do tomorrow. It might have earned you all this money the last 40 years, but tomorrow, who knows what it's going to do. So you can't say, well, it's done this in the past, so we know it'll do this in the future, because it changes day to day. Jesus is not like that, friends. Past performance is indicative of future results because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus says to Philip, you have seen me, and you have heard my words, and you have seen my works. Believe for these sakes. Now, when Jesus says this to Philip, he hasn't yet died and rose again, but that's just around the corner. And you and I, we look at it on this side of the gospel, on this side of the cross. We're looking back at what Jesus has already done, what he's already accomplished. And so just like the Israelites who God had freed from Egypt and supplied every need through the desert and now are on the brink of the promised land, you and I, whatever it is that we're on the brink of, we can look back at Jesus freeing us from our sin, freeing us from our slavery, winning our freedom on the cross, providing our every need, sustaining us all the way, and we can look back and say past performance will be indicative of future results. God has been there for me. And I can have confidence he will be there for me in the days ahead. So when we are called to hard things, when we are called out of our comfort zone, when we feel threatened, when we feel adrift, we can have hope 
not because we ignore the challenges ahead, but rather because we have perspective, because we have the promises of God, and because we know that in the past he has never failed us. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, I ask that you would comfort hearts in this moment. Lord, that our hearts would not be troubled. That we could obey the command to not be afraid. Because we remember what it is that you have done for us. Lord, I ask that you would fill our hearts with hope. That you would give us peace. We pray this in the name of your son. They're going to lead us in a song of response. I'm going to ask you to just kind of remain in a posture of prayer. You can come to the Lord and pray at the altar, pray there at your seat, or sing along as they lead.